Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us again on ADH. I'm Alan Jones, as you most probably know. Don't forget, you can email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Don't forget the dot. Our viewing public is growing in numbers each week, and I think the reason is simple. We say things as they are, inspired by the belief that there are things you're entitled to know which the woke world won't tell you. I note today a headline that the honeymoon is over for Anthony Albanese. Let me say again, I know Anthony Albanese. He's a good and decent man, but this game is not about personalities. It's about policy. And as the policies start to hit, there is one word that applies, disaster. I said last night that polls are irrelevant at this stage of the electoral cycle. Nonetheless, the Resolve Strategic Polling Director, Jim Reid, makes a very simple point. Albanese and Labor's election honeymoon is over. And why wouldn't it be? We have any number of energy market regulators now warning us, but I warned of this months and months ago, that this year's perfect storm in electricity markets will push up bills for years to come. At the centre of the storm is the cyclonic damage being done by the government's energy policies. And this impacts families who are being told to prepare for, to prepare for an economic shock over the next six months, higher prices. Then there are rising interest rates. Then there are higher mortgage repayments as a result. And then, of course, as I said, escalating energy bills. Yet Labor went to an election repeating the deception 97 times that they in government would reduce your energy bill. They even made up a number, $275. Where they got that from, I've got no idea. But these warnings from the Australian energy market operator must be a wake-up call for government. The rubbish policy of Chris Bowen is about parallel to the rubbish tax policy that he took to the electorate under Bill Shorten's leadership. And the economic damage will be the same. The Australian energy market operator warned this week of power gaps in New South Wales from 2025 and all states from 2027. But the federal and New South Wales governments want to end coal-fired power. Chris Bowen continues with his head in the sand, saying the transition to renewable energy needed to be faster and much more orderly and re reliable than it had been. Well, that's got to be this week's joke. Renewable energy will never be able to meet our energy needs full stop. I have said a million times, responsible energy policy can be summed up in one sentence. The energy needs to be available, reliable and affordable. Renewable energy is none of those. We know Bowen's arrogant, but if he keeps talking the way he is about our energy future, we'll have to also say that he's dumb. And if not that, duplicitous, which means dishonest. He's living a climate fantasy, burying the coal industry here while it's booming worldwide. As Bjorn Lomborg has said simply, quote, the rich world's fossil fuel hypocrisy is on full display. He went on, most of the world's poorest 4 billion people have no meaningful energy access, so the rich blithely tell them to leapfrog from no energy to a green nirvana of solar panels and wind turbines, unquote. I'll be raising these issues with Peter Dutton, to whom I'll speak in just a moment. Meanwhile, the Liberal Party in New South Wales continues to fight with itself. They now don't know who is going to win the New South Wales upper house seat, vacated by that political grub, Peter Poulos, except that Jackie Munro won't get the gig. And while all the talk is about inflation and the Reserve Bank, it is a pity that governments won't do their bit and stop spending. There are tools other than interest rates to reduce inflation. And I cite simply, cut regulation and red tape, and cut government spending. But the Albanese and Perite governments haven't got that message. No wonder the Reserve Bank has sent a virtual distress call to the Albanese government to do more to help bring inflation under control, but its energy policy is sending prices through the roof, which means that we're warned every day that there'll be more interest rate increases and more pain on the way. I'll keep at it on your behalf 
and some, some of those boneheads in Canberra can see reality. But before I go to Peter Dutton, there's a very interesting story from Queensland, for which I do give credit to the Palaszczuk government. They're going to override human rights laws and reintroduce controversial breach of bail penalties for juvenile offenders. Now, you can hear all the left-wing do-gooders screaming and jumping up and down, but the Palaszczuk government in the face of juvenile crime is going to introduce legislation to the Queensland Parliament where children who breach bail conditions will face two years imprisonment. Now, the government has heard the people's cry following a spate of high-profile alleged crimes over summer. The government has acknowledged that the changes were incompatible with human rights protections, which the Palaszczuk government itself introduced in 2019. But the police minister Ryan has said, and I quote, the amendment may make it more likely that children will be detained pending trial. And for that reason, what we are doing is inconsistent with international standards about the best interests of the child, unquote. But the police minister went on correctly to say, quote, the government considers that this measure is needed to respond to the small cohort of serious repeat young offenders who engage in persistent and serious offending, in particular, offending while on bail, unquote. Well, of course, the so-called human rights experts have criticised Labor's reform, but they don't listen to people like Michelle Little and Ben Beaumont, the parents of Angus, who were slain by teenagers north of Brisbane in 2020. They rightly say, as things stand now, the system is weighed too heavily in favour of young offenders. One of the son's killers, who can't be named for legal reason, was on bail at the time of the murder. Some common sense being applied to the justice system in Queensland, where common sense is really common. Well, to Peter Dutton, yesterday I caught up with Peter Dutton, oddly enough, on the streets of Melbourne. I think you'll be impressed by what he has to say and the fluency and conviction with which it is said. Here is that interview in its entirety. The Federal Opposition Leader Peter Dutton will join me in a moment, but before he does, can I just say what you know, I've been around a bit and I've seen the political scene virtually inside out. So let me begin by saying at this stage of the election cycle, polls mean absolutely nothing. True conservatives, and there are plenty of them out there looking for a political home, which Morrison never provided, he was just a mirror image of Labor. What is needed now, and Peter Dutton most probably doesn't need advice from me, but you put your stake in the ground on critical issues, which I'll address in a moment, and they include ideology, the voice, energy policy, superannuation, and industrial relations, and of course, the cashless welfare card. On what the government is proposing, I would say, oppose the lot. Show the voter what you stand for. The left-wing media will vilify you because you dare to challenge the left-wing orthodoxy of government. But already the Albanese government, and I have said this many times, as you know, Albo's a genuinely good bloke. But this is not about policy, uh, personality. This is about policy. And basically, the ideological Labor bird is now flapping its wings. Anthony Albanese says, if you oppose the voice, you're starting a culture war. I have said, as you know, that conservatives have got to stop the damage that Labor is doing in waging a war on our constitution, on our economy via energy policy and industrial relation changes, to name a few. We can no longer put the king's face on a $5 note. We've got an assistant minister for the Republic when we don't have a Republic. We've got an ambassador for First Nations people. First Nations? Aren't we one nation? Or do we have our own brand of apartheid? We don't have the Australian flag at press conferences, but the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags have equivalents with the Australian flag. That's not something the majority of Australians enjoy or support. And then, of course, Jim Chalmers, still on his economic pea plates, is going to, quote, build a better capitalism. God knows who wrote that stuff. But in base political terms, Peter Dutton should be able to make a picnic out of all of this. And public attitudes will change. 
Peter Dutton joins me. Peter, thank you for your time. Grateful for you being with us. Surely what underpins everything is the realisation that 68% of voting Australians didn't vote for Labor. How do you prosecute the ideological truth of what Labor are now doing on many fronts, which was never raised at the last election? Well, Alan, uh, firstly, great to be on the program. Uh, and good to see you looking so well, mate. Uh, I want to make a couple of points. I mean, firstly, I grew up uh, in the Liberal Party. I first joined when I was 18. Uh, it's in my blood and the values that we represent as a party, I want to carry through in my leadership. I was a junior minister in the Howard years and I've been on the front bench uh, in government and opposition since 2004. I've always stood up for what I believe in and I've taken the slings and arrows. I've fought the good fight on many issues and I want to continue to do that. And in terms of Labor's position, you're right. I mean, 32% of people gave their primary vote to the Labor Party at the last election. A different picture in seats across the country, but we have to have a very different presentation to the Australian public by the time of the next election. We can't go there pretending that we're Labor light or that somehow people will vote for us if we're a pale imitation of the Labor Dead Party. Right. That is Dead not... Dead that is run. not in the DNA of the Liberal Party, and uh, we'll continue to define our policies, release them at the right time, and there will be a very significant difference between the two parties for people to choose between by the time of the next election. Good on you. See, I, I think, we'll just take this one by one, the voice. Now, I think people are bored rigid with this talk about the voice, and I know you've asked 15 questions that Labor don't want to answer, but isn't this really a simple story? Surely the story is how a voice would be constituted and operate, I see that as irrelevant. Shouldn't a coalition be saying, we will not support inserting a race-based amendment into our constitution? Well, Alan, at the last election, uh, we took a policy decision and, and had a policy that we presented to the electorate, which said that we supported a local and regional voice, allowing Indigenous people to feed in their thoughts and how the situation might improve them. I think 99% of Australians have in their hearts a desire to see better outcomes. We've just been to Leonora and Laverton in WA to Alice Springs just before Christmas and nobody wants to see kids living in that squalor. Nobody wants to see the truancy rates or the life expectancy rates uh, that we see at the moment. Everybody wants to see an improvement uh, in those outcomes. But the thing that the government can't explain is why having a voice enshrined in the Constitution is going to make a practical difference in the lives of those Indigenous kids and women who are suffering much higher rates than the general population of domestic violence. So mm. we've said we want the information, we want to show respect and we'll hear the case that the Prime Minister has to put. It keeps changing, of course, because now he's saying, well, we're not going to reference the Karma Langton report, whereas a few weeks ago he was saying he could reference that document. Uh, he's saying that the voice won't have a seat at the National Cabinet table, but you've got Patrick Dodson out there saying that they should. So we don't even know what the final model is yet. And we'll make all of our points once we've settled on a position and that will come in due course and people that, have been patient. Yeah. Some people want us out there now, but that, that's our approach. Right. Shouldn't, though, the coalition be telling Australians that this will create two categories of Australians? That was once called apartheid, by the way, but are we to have Aboriginal Australians and we don't know who qualifies as an Aboriginal Australian, but they'd get two votes and non-Aboriginals get one vote. I mean, out, out there, they're angry about this. Well, Alan, I get it. I mean, in your introduction, you were making a very valid point that for most Australians at the moment, they're worried, frankly, about how they're going to pay their electricity. Bill, Absolutely. They're going to fill up the fuel, uh, you know, in their car, how they're going to pay the school fees, how they're going to continue to keep their private health insurance. I mean, they're the issues uh, that, frankly, are front and centre at the moment. And Mr Albanese is making policy decisions, along with Jim Chalmers, that is making it much harder than it actually needs to be for families because the policies that they're presiding over are driving up inflation and therefore driving up interest rates. So I think that's the issue. In terms of the, uh, the constitutional question, uh, the Liberal Party, as you know, back to John Howard, has supported recognition in the Constitution for Indigenous Australians. But the voice is something that uh, the Prime Minister's come up with it on some days he says it's not it's not his mm. initiative. He's just can yes. here. But yes. uh, again, I mean, they're, they're chopping and changing. I think the Australians just want a straight answer from their prime minister. So far, they haven't got it. No. And I think our job, uh, in part as an opposition, is to keep the pressure 
on the PM for him to release that detail. Don't you think the silence, though, by the government on providing details is proof that they're terrified of telling the voter what this is really all about? I mean, where do you think this black sovereignty and Lydia Thorpe fit into all of this? Well, there's, a, there's an element of that uh, within some Indigenous leadership groups. There's no, no question about that. And uh, I, I, I don't think that represents uh, anything uh, like a majority view. I mean, it's in, in the single digits, uh, in my judgment. But I must say, on, uh, and I haven't said this to anyone else yet, but going out to Leonora and these places where the, the damage to humans and, and the the violence driven by grog is just prolific. Mm. It's a further escape from the minds of, of those Indigenous Just stop there and, for and one moment. Just stop there for one moment, Peter. Just explain to our viewers what we're talking about here. This is uh, the Prime Minister um, went to Kalgoorlie on Monday and the towns, let me make this point, that you actually visited were towns that asked the Prime Minister, 400 kilometres from Kalgoorlie, to visit and they can't make any contact with the Prime Minister or with the government on any of these things. Peter Dutton went there and just explain what you heard from... These are Indigenous leaders, I mean, who made the point that the voice means nothing to them or, you know, restoring the right to buy alcohol means nothing when you're actually losing a child as a result of a violent family. Alan, it, it really was uh, pretty confronting. And, you know, as a police officer, I went into... Uh, some terrible scenes and houses and murders and, and all the rest of it. But when you're in the communities, it, it really strikes you that the abject squalor, uh, the, the frustration that's felt by the community leaders, by the Shire presidents, uh, the councillors, the, the parents in the community, because when the cashless debit card applied, they saw a reduction in the alcohol consumption and therefore a result uh, of lesser violence, people buying more food, less grog, less drugs in the community, feeding their kids, not just spending their money on alcohol and drugs. And when we sat down in the round tables in these communities, the Prime Minister flew over to get to Kalgoorlie and to Perth for the high ticket, uh, high price ticket that, uh, occasion that he had in, in Perth, a big flash dinner, uh, when we were having dinner at uh, Leonora at the local pub there. They're angry and they're frankly at a wit's end where they're saying, we just can't keep up with the level of violence. And the kids are the victims here. The women are, 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 the, are the, the victims. And, you know, sitting in those groups, the Indigenous women are saying uh, that they want the grog to stop. The local uh, businessman who has the local store says, you know, if the government wants evidence, because the Prime Minister, you know, says, oh, well, there's no evidence that the cashless debit card works. And, and the way that it does work is that it requires people to spend money on food, not alcohol, so that their kids get, get fed. And the, the, the shop owner was saying he can track it almost to the day where when the cashless debit card was in force, people are buying fruit, they're buying veggies, they're buying meat, they're preparing meals, they're buying food for their kids. And almost immediately when the cashless debit card was abolished by Anthony Albanese, the grog sales go up and the food sales mm. go down, the presentations of the kids at the soup kitchen goes up. So I don't know what more the Prime Minister needs to mm. act, but he's not across the detail mm. and he won't go and listen to these communities and listen firsthand. They're not talking about the voice. They no. want the violence to end. They want the grog to end and they just want to get on with the normal life like every other Australian. Yeah, absolutely. It, just before we get off this voice thing, uh, I just say to my viewers, I think Peter Dutton made reference to this, but I should repeat it. It is indicative of the impending failure of this referendum and it will fail that Anthony Albanese is now saying, distancing himself from ownership of the voice, he says, it's not my voice, it's not Labor's voice, it's the people's voice. I mean, give us a break on all of that. Now, look, on the energy policy, um, why is it hard to oppose outright and explain your opposition to Bowen's energy policy? I mean, I see Bowen as the gift that keeps on giving. He cost Bill Shorten the Prime Ministership, with a tax policy that was punitive and destructive of the economy and said, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. And if you keep hammering away, he'll cost Albanese the prime ministership with energy policy. Now, I've raised this many times, Peter, but Bowen is talking, as you know, but I just repeat it for our viewers, a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030. And he admits, now this is mind blowing, that you'd need 22,000 
500 watt solar panels every day for eight years. He admits you'd need 40 seven megawatt wind turbines every month. He admits you'd need 10,000 kilometres of additional transmission lines. Opposition leader, is this bloke off his head? <laughs> well, Alan, I, I mean, the only point of difference I have with you there is that you didn't go far enough back into his CV. Don't forget that he was one of the great immigration ministers of the Rudd-Gillard period uh, that was out there with the welcome mat uh, for people coming on boats. He was a complete disaster. He had cash for clunkers. He had all sorts of policies, fuel watch, grocery watch. Uh, and he actually believes that he's Paul Keating reincarnated. Uh, so delusional uh, is he? And, and why, why would you want to be uh, Paul Keating reincarnated? But anyway, lots of questions there for, for the next time we catch up. But on, on the issue of energy, it's worse than that, Alan. I mean, the, the mechanism that they're embracing at the moment is a carbon tax by any other name. It is. It's at $75 a tonne, which is three times the price that Julia Gillard was proposing. This is for 215 of the biggest, 200 biggest employers, biggest users in the country, and they're the biggest employers. You go on. Well, and, and the, the biggest emitters, some of the biggest employers, and some of them are going to move offshore as a result of what the government's Quite. proposing here. But effectively, what they're saying is that they want a year-on-year -year reduction of 4.9% in their emissions. Some of those industries, cement, for example... I, I think you should watch this very closely because what we're going to see is an export of the industry and those companies offshore, they'll set up in Southeast Asia somewhere or in another part of the world, will lose the jobs, will lose the economic productivity and emissions will still go into the global environment. There will be no emissions reductions in net terms. And this is what Chris Bowen's latest dalliance is in relation to public policy. So right. now, having said that, but Peter, having said that, having said that, and very, may I say, very articulate in the saying of it, why wouldn't you simply say, listen, the opposition are not going over the cliff with you lot on energy policy. We reject the lot of it. Well, Alan, I mean, we, we've made the points that I've just made now very strongly in relation to uh, the safeguard mechanism. I think it's a disaster in the making. The closing of Liddell, and some of the other decisions that will have to be made over the next 12 months, I think give the real prospect of disruption to energy supply. So blackouts, prices will continue to go up under the policies that they've got. And I think that there's a time and place for us to announce our policies. Uh, I think we're at, at the you know, nine-month mark, effectively, of, uh, uh, of this term. And there are a lot of people who I don't think are going to be jolted into reality when it comes to energy policy until you do see, sadly, a disruption and blackouts or industry taking a decision no to go offshore. So There's no doubt about there, it. There will, be, there will be the appropriate time for us to make announcements about our energy policy, what we're doing. At the moment, our, our job is to hold a bad government to account, to point out where they're going wrong, where they're causing great difficulty and increasing difficulty for families and small businesses and medium and large-sized businesses, the big right. employers. Right. And we, we will work through our policies, make them well-known in due course, happy to talk about them at the right time. But now it's time to concentrate on what the government's doing, to call that out. Yeah. And Let me, uh, we've made a policy announcement in relation to see, wanting to discuss nuclear, which is absolutely essential see, uh, to have that discussion. See, it's common knowledge everywhere. I mean, people like me, I'm demonised and cancelled because I'm a climate change denier and so on. Well, I'm in good company because Stephen Coonan, and I say this for the benefit of our viewers, Professor Stephen Coonan was Barack Obama's former chief scientist. He has written a book called Unsettled, He's been treated by the left-wing media in America as if he didn't exist. Professor Kernan wrote, quote, leaders talk about existential threat, climate emergency, disaster, crisis. But in fact, when you actually read the literature, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science, he said, is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades much less what effect human beings will have on it. Now, this is a self-declared Democrat who's increasingly dismayed by climate alarmism. Now, I just don't know why anyone on the coalition side, Peter, would buy into this alarmism. Well, Alan, firstly, in relation to the broader issue around people being able to express their views, 
without being cancelled or without being savagely attacked online. Uh, there, there are many, many views uh, out of Republican and Democratic administrations uh, in relation to this issue, and they should be heard because uh, they, they have a, a contribution to make to the debate. Now, I, I, we, we've been through this issue. I've spoken to you over many years uh, on this issue, but the Liberal Party's been through many debates in relation to the issue. We, we do have a commitment to reduce emissions, but we want to do it in a responsible way we want to do it in a way that's not going to send families and small businesses broke. We have to realise that we're in a global trading environment. We're an export nation. And you've got Europe and others who are now talking about sanctions and tariffs by stealth. So there is a whole layer of this debate still to play out. And the, the, the use of nuclear technology to firm up renewables in the system come with zero emissions at a lower cost to consumers. It's why it's embraced in Canada uh, in the United States, in China, uh, in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. And yet we can't even have a debate in this country. As you pointed out earlier, the government's talking about rolling out 28,000 kilometres of poles and wires, can't including through can't be done. land and, and farms and national parks, can't be done. which is never going to happen. Can't it's be done. Can't be done. Dream, I'll just say uh, another thing. For the, for, for the benefit of our viewers, I'll just say, uh, and we'll get off this in a minute, but William Kinnanmonth is an Australian. He was the former head, distinguished head of the National Climate Centre within the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. He's on record as saying, and I quote, climate science is not settled. Four decades of observations highlight that computer models have exaggerated the influence of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide. He said the Paris Agreement has been negotiated from faulty premises. Uh, I mean, does the coalition know more than people like Professor Kernan and William Kinnanmonth? Well, Alan, as you know, I mean, to be fair in, in the discussion, uh, there are other eminent scientists who have the contrary view. Now, in, in time, uh, perhaps uh, one view or the other uh, is dismissed or confirmed. But for me, I've got to deal with the reality of where the business community is, where our trading partners are, mm. uh, where a large section of the Australian community is. And we, we've gone through the debates about the science. We accept uh, the science and the premise. We have taken to an election under John Howard, under Tony Abbott, under Malcolm Turnbull, under Scott Morrison, uh, credible policies in relation to reducing emissions. And that's going to be our approach into the future. But there is failure coming in terms of what Labor is presiding over at the moment. Absolutely. Families are going to feel that most, yeah. most acutely, and that is the, mm. the centre of the debate. Now. It is the centre of the debate. I mean, the Greens... The Greens want to stop... The Greens want to stop... The Greens want to stop all coal and gas exploration. Tanya Plibersek has just stopped a Palmer coal mine in Queensland, which produces coking coal, which is used for steel products like Parliament House. And people like Matt Keane, a Liberal in New South Wales, wants to go the, down the same road. I mean, why wouldn't the coalition say, I'll finish here, why wouldn't you say we are not going over the economic cliff with people like Chris Bowen? Well, Alan, as I say, I think the only point of difference in terms of, uh, of, of our conversation on, on having a, a policy that, uh, that people understand is, is one of timing. Our, our policy, we're not going over the cliff with Chris Bowen. I mean, let's make that very clear. Uh, there, there is no way in the world that we are adopting a $75 a tonne carbon tax, and we've been very clear about that. Uh, it's three times the price of Julie Gillard's, as I pointed out before. They're presiding over closing down assets before the new assets are ready. So you, you have a very uh, high likelihood, as uh, you know, one of the experts pointed out to just the other day, that's, that you are going to see uh, failure within and disruption within the energy supply. That is catastrophic to an economy like ours. And businesses who are investing here will just say, well, why would I invest in Australia? Absolutely. They've got the highest prices to do business in, in the world in terms of energy. And, and they can't guarantee a supply. In WA, we've seen an afternoon shift restricted in businesses so that they... Uh, I mean, why, why would they stay? And now they want to put a cap on price, a cap on price. See, I mean, Peter, shouldn't we be, we have been, an economic powerhouse? We've got the lot. We've got coal, we've got gas, we've got renewables, we've got nuclear, we've got hydrogen. Why wouldn't you put all of those into the mix and that would equal our becoming an economic powerhouse and the envy of the world which we once were? I mean, why is the rest of the world 
is actually virtually dismantling our economic strength. Well, Alan, on, on the Liberal Party, you know, on the Coalition Watch, uh, we, we have embraced hydrogen. We have embraced coal, gas, uh, the renewables, and we've started a debate for the first time in relation to nuclear power because the new small modular reactors have the ability to plug and play mm. into an existing distribution network, zero emissions, as I say, a lower cost to households and to businesses, an assurance about supply, and there are many other elements uh, to our policy that we're contemplating at the moment. And we'll make all of those announcements uh, in the run-up to, mm. uh, to the election. Well, There's before we go, I want... we're, we're not... I want to raise one final thing before you go, and I congratulate you, by the way, and I'm sure our viewers have noted the fluency. This bloke standing in a street in Melbourne talking to me. doesn't have a whole heap of notes in front of him. In superannuation, this is another ideological swamp, and I know you climbed into them yesterday, but what is Dr Chalmers, apart from being, as I called him, the Greta Thunberg of economic policy, what is he on about about superannuation? Why does he want to legislate the reason for super? Isn't superannuation about simply building up a pool of savings for retirement? What does Chalmers mean when he says super should provide incomes in an equitable and sustainable way? Isn't that government seeking to direct and manipulate our savings? Well, of course it is. And you've now got his former boss, Wayne Swan, uh, who's a very senior figure within the industry super funds where the unions have significant control. And there are two reasons, Alan. I mean, one is that the Labor Party always believe that they can do better with your money than you can. And they always believe in higher taxes because they always spend more. So first, they'll come after people with higher balances and higher returns in their superannuation funds. They'll tax those as they want to tax individuals on higher incomes. And then when that falls short and they don't have enough money collected, they'll come after people on the next rundown and the next rundown after that. So if you're an aspirational Australian working hard, wanting to provide for your retirement, wanting to provide for your children to have a good education, to have a nice home, to have a good lifestyle, the Labor Party is not your party. And if the Labor Party is saying to the Australian public that you can have an asset class in your superannuation that the industry super funds run, that allows your money that you've worked hard for, that you've put into your industry super fund account to be used to buy somebody else a home, somebody you've never met, that it's okay in Jim Chalmers' model for your money to be used to buy a complete stranger a home, but you can't use your superannuation toward your first home that was our policy at the last election. And importantly, we said when you sell a home and there's an uplift in the value, that you put the contribution and the uplift back into super so that it continues to compound to provide you with adequacy in retirement. I'll tell you it's, what. It's a complete ideological position. This is, this is socialism gone mad. Well, viewers, course, viewers, I just, I just say to the viewers, there's over $3 trillion in superannuation. That's more money than all the banks have. Now, just before we go, uh, uh, Peter, didn't Chalmers bell the cap on Monday when he said that superannuation reforms would enable investment by funds... Now, that's more than $3 trillion, more money than the banks. But Chalmers said reforming super means that money could be invested in projects that, quote, boost housing supply, manage climate change and spur digital transformation. That's what Chalmers said. Peter, if superannuation funds today believe those projects were sensible investments, they could do all that now, couldn't they? This is the old socialism rearing its head. Of course, absolutely, you're absolutely right, Alan. I mean, what, what you want if you're putting money into your superannuation fund is to maximise the return. I mean, the higher the risk, uh, and as, as people well know, I mean, your, your viewers well know this. I mean, if you're placing your money at a younger age into a higher risk strategy, you'll get a higher return. But it comes with a risk and there's downturn and maybe the cycle turns down and you can pick it up. Uh, closer to retirement, etc. But if you're close to retirement and you've got a balance of superannuation in your superannuation fund of, say, 750000 a million dollars, uh, and, and you've worked hard, you and your wife have worked hard for that money, and you are relying on that, you don't want Jim Chalmers to come along and say, well, I'm going to mandate that your money, at least part of your money, is going to go into a fund for social housing. Or solar panels. <laughs> 
a commercial return or solar panels that you're not so into, yeah. but there's no commercial return. And you want you want the best possible return on your money so that you can enjoy Definitely. retirement, Definitely. bequeath your children some money, help them out mm. to buy their own home, whatever else. That is mm. the great aspiration, yeah. and that's what the Liberal Party believes well, in. Well, uh, the Labor Party believes in taking your money and doing with yeah, it uh, as they want. Absolutely. Well, look out. Look out. They're coming after our money. I'm telling you. And that's why we need to watch. Look, we can go on all night. It's great to talk to you. Uh, very comprehensive coverage. And thank you for being so articulate and across the issues. We'll talk again because we are at a critical time, I think, in the question of nature of Australia's leadership and its economic direction, Peter Dutton. So many thanks and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, mate. Take care. Uh, Peter Dutton, now there you are. You pick up the paper and read about this bloke and you see nothing but criticism and the polls say he's out of this and he's out of that. On top of the issues, and they're big issues, aren't they? But that superannuation issue was massive and none of that before the election. They're coming after us. I just want to follow up a couple of points that Peter Dutton made in that interview. But before I do, we do follow up things here. You might recall last night, I spoke to Peggy Grandy in America about the perception that you would get from the left-wing dominated media that Trump is finished. Now, remember, during the Trump presidency, we didn't hear a peep from Putin or Xi or the rocket man in North Korea. Trump has said in recent days that if he were president, he'd pull Putin and Zelensky together and he'd get a deal done in 24 hours. That's how he operates, a businessman. Get rid of the bureaucrats, talk to people from a position of strength. This is Donald Trump arguing that position today. There's peace and it's peace through strength. There was a reason we had no conflict. There was a reason we didn't get into wars because other countries respected us. I entirely built all right from the beginning, rebuilt our military. It's a big reason for that. They didn't want to mess around with the United States and now they're laughing at us. We could end the Ukraine conflict in 24 hours with the right leadership. At the end of my next four years, the warmongers and frauds and failures of the senior ranks of our government will all be gone, and we will have a new group of competent national security officials who believe in defending America's vital interests above all else. That's significant stuff, you see. The reality is there was no Xi, there was no Putin. They didn't move when Trump was there. As soon as he was gone, all hell's broken loose. I'll be talking next week, by the way, about what is becoming a very problematical issue the continuation of the war between Russia and Ukraine. But now to pick up on some of Peter Dutton's observations in that interview, by the way, I don't understand Dutton's critics. It was clear in what you saw that he's on top of the issues and there's going to be no pushover. And in a world where our values and democratic institutions, freedom itself are under siege, witness above all else freedom of speech, where people are frightened to say what they think. And if you disagree about climate change or vaccination or the voice, you'll be vilified and demonised and cancelled. Someone's got to turn this ship of state around. Peter Dutton said he's not going to go over the cliff with Bowen on energy policy. Now, the public, thankfully, are not completely stupid. Kerry McDermott from Binalong, which is a village in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales, 37 kilometres from Yass, rightly says, and I quote, it's fascinating watching the slow train wreck that is Europe exacerbated, of course, by their lack of foresight in failing to diversify their energy supplies as they drift towards drastic energy shortages and sky-high prices. It's fascinating too, says the writer, reading all the letters from readers who refuse to see that the principal problem is over-reliance on wind and solar generation, unquote. Well, it's obvious that people like Chris Bowen don't own a map because in Europe, implementing a green agenda without anything to adequately replace fossil fuels is a recipe for energy poverty. And that's where we're heading, unless we continue to produce fossil fuels. Now, by all means, continue to seek to provide alternatives if you're so hung up about coal, but surely we're not going to repeat the policy failures, the energy poverty of Europe. And if carbon dioxide is the problem, it seems that places like China and India offer little support for these costly schemes and emissions targets, as Doug Hurst from the ACT writes, and I quote, 
they would find China and India planning to burn increasing amounts of coal for decades to come. He writes, Britain and most of the EU are turning back to coal and nuclear and delaying emission reduction targets with similar change elsewhere and coal prices increasing by as much as 10 times last year to meet rapidly rising demand, unquote. And then touching on superannuation, which I'll come to in a moment, writes Doug Hurst, only a year ago, fund managers were calling coal mines stranded assets. Today, they're no doubt ruining their divestment of coal assets. Which brings us to the reference by Peter Dutton on superannuation. The first question should be asked is, why didn't we hear about any of this fiddling with your super before the last election? Yes, it's true that the incentives through the tax system given to superannuation are worth more than $200 billion a year, according to Treasury estimates, which is about 8% of the entire economy. And of course, Labor are now looking for money. And as Peter Dutton said, with the budget in chronic deficit, with an excess of spending overtaxing of up to $50 billion, the Labor government is after money. Now, I'm the first person to say we have to make hard decisions. We have to reduce government spending as a proportion of income or we will have to raise taxes. We can't go on living beyond our means. But as I said in that interview with Peter Dutton, Dr Chalmers, with a less than impressive CV of working with Wayne Swan for years and being a backroom apparatchik in the Labor Party, Dr Chalmers now seems unapologetic about attacking your superannuation more than $3 trillion. As I said last night, your accumulated super funds are greater than the capitalisation of the banks. But Chalmers said he wants to reform super so that more money could be invested in projects that, quote, boost housing supply, manage climate change and spur digital transformation, unquote. This is the same Dr Chalmers who before the election said, and I quote, Australians shouldn't expect major changes to superannuation if the government changes hands. Does the bloke tell lies? Anthony Albanese said before the election, I quote, we have not planned for any changes on superannuation, any. Now any politician presiding over such a major policy breach should be run out of town. We have not planned for any changes on superannuation. But what they're proposing has come under attack from the former governor of the Reserve Bank and a superannuation fund director, Bernie Fraser, making the simple point that these changes will cut the returns that will come to you from your super. Stating the obvious, Bernie Fraser said that he, quote, can't believe Chalmers would be arguing for funds to invest in social projects which have pretty low returns, says Bernie Fraser that would cut right across the thrust of investment by super funds to put the interests of members very much to the fore, unquote. But there's Chalmers this week saying that reforming superannuation means your money could be invested in projects, or by the way, invested, will the government be directing superannuation funds where to invest the money? In projects that, quote, boost housing supply, manage climate change and spur digital transformation. You heard me make the point to Peter Dutton that if superannuation funds today believed these projects were sensible investments, they would be investing in them now. This is unadulterated socialism. Government knowing best what should be done with our money and a treasurer on economic training wheels wanting our super for solar panels, windmills and social housing. Like the energy policy, I'm telling you now, this is political suicide a breach of a commitment given before the election and a threat to limit the returns on your superannuation money. So, you want to judge the Albanese government? Well, you can do that on The Voice, on energy policy, on its response to the indigenous problems in Alice Springs, on industrial relations and these multi-employer agreements where every person doing a particular job wherever the job is geographically, has to be paid the same. You can judge the government on all of those things. But the most damaging judgment can be expressed now in one sentence. This government owns an unacceptable broken promise because now, for them, your superannuation equals their tax.
Well, let's go to Britain where the political scene is anything but calm. Nicola Sturgeon has resigned as the Scottish leader and leader of the Scottish National Party. Many MPs thought to be behind the removal of Boris Johnson are now being deselected. But the departure of Sturgeon has consequences far beyond that of the Scottish National Party leadership. The UK's whole political landscape could be about to change. Make no mistake, Sturgeon is going just as Jacinda Ardern went. They were both facing problems they couldn't escape. And to put it simply, both were on the nose. Sturgeon's critics rightly argue that she was becoming mired in failure and scandal and knew there would not be a winnable referendum anytime soon on Scottish independence. Then, of course, she was trying to defend her Gender Self-ID Act, you can't believe this, where in Scotland, a rapist claimed to be a woman, so was sent to a women's prison. She thought that was terrific. The British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, vetoed her Gender Recognition Reform Bill and was on the same side as Scottish public opinion. There are other scandals too, the disclosure of loans from her husband to the party, a police investigation into a missing £600,000 given ahead of a referendum campaign. However, if Sturgeon was the face of the Scottish National Party, and if some mad left winger is elected to replace her, the Scots may well depart the party, and the only place they'd go to would be the Labor Party. And the revival of Scottish Labor who lost 40 seats in 2015, the revival could be Keir Starmer's best route to a landslide federal election victory. Now let's go to the man who knows it all. I don't know any person I've got to tell you in world politics who knows more people and talks to more people than this man, David Maddox, and he writes beautifully too. You can read him at express.co.uk. David, thank you for your time again. You tell an interesting story that a Glasgow MP told you he had nominated this fellow, Humza Yousaf, the 37-year-old minister, they call them cabinet secretaries over there, for health and social care, the first non-white cabinet minister in the Scottish government. Now, this bloke was born and raised in Glasgow, but his father was born in Pakistan, came to Glasgow in 1962. The mother was born in Kenya. He's got a master's degree in politics from Glasgow University. But David, he's very ambitious and he's a left winger. What do you make of all of this? Well, it's it, it's been a dramatic week again, as you say. Uh, it, it always seems to be a dramatic week. But uh, yes, uh, so Humza Yusuf is, uh, is a high flyer in the Scottish National Party. He was elected in 2011, uh, was a minister a year later and uh, has been... Uh, very um, close to the leadership. Uh, he's a protege of Nicola Sturgeon's, actually shares a lot of uh, uh, slightly crazy politics mm. as well. I, I mean, uh, I, can, uh, I can tell you, and I, I wrote about this yesterday, the um, Scottish Labour Party in particular, but also the um, Scottish Conservatives are praying that this man is made leader of the uh, yes, absolutely. SFD. They are absolutely on their knees praying that it happens. And, and, and I think there's a good chance. Well, it, he's, he's, he's an absolute Captain Calamity. Yeah, you know, this well, is come to him in a minute. Uh, Just come to him in a minute, this, this, this chap. But firstly, a quick one. Your judgment on Sturgeon, surely divisive, a pain in the neck for the government at Westminster, confronting failure, and the architect of this gender recognition reform bill which Prime Minister Sunak couldn't wait to veto. I mean, David, fancy a rapist claiming to be a woman being sent to a woman's prison. There's so much you could say about Sturgeon. I, personally, I, I my, my previous job was actually working directly with Scottish politics. She once tried to get me the sack. And um, I, I, I have to say, it may be, it may be personal, but I, I can't think of a more toxic politician and uh, in in my time in uh, writing about politics there in Britain, that's, um, that's, I mean, she really is your uh, she is really is our version of Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, I think, absolutely. I have to say that, but but if in, a, if, if in a general election yeah. for Sunak, people now deserted the Scottish National Party, they're not going to gravitate to mm. the Tories, so they'd vote Labour, won't they? This would be a big leg up for Starmer. It'll be a big leg up for Starmer. Uh, I would, I would put money on Scottish Labour winning the next, uh, certainly in Scotland. Um, yeah. I think. Uh, I mean, we we did um, 
some polling. Uh, it, it was pretty inexact, but it looked like a quarter of the SNP voted disappeared. Most of that will go to Labour, but some of it will go to the Conservatives mm. in some of the rural parts of Scotland. And, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, if, if Labour can win another 30 seats in Scotland, that gives them a great Absolutely. platform to win. Absolutely. Win. Just, I'll come to this Probably bloke, Humza, I'll come to this bloke, Humza Yousaf, in a moment, mm. who seems to be the consensus choice. And as David said, they're all praying uh, both the, the Tories and the Labour to get the gig. What about, though, the rival, the Finance Secretary or Minister, as we call them here, Kate Forbes? She's on record as saying she would have voted against gay marriage. Now, is she a chance? Well, she was the kind of early front runner on the uh, when 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 Sturgeon resigned, and uh, she's certainly the most competent. She's the one that uh, the uh, that Labour and the uh, Conservatives are actually most worried about. But of course, she's socially conservative. She belongs to the We Free Church yeah. up yeah. in Scotland, which is this kind of um, uh, more kind of uh, conservatives, small C Well, I mean, the Scottish National Party does have a lot of older members and they're very small C conservative. No, it does, and she, may, and she may still win. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite clear that the establishment is very, you know, this so-called progressive. Yeah. So I think is very misleading. Which are regressive. But, yeah. uh, uh, but, you know, there's this big backlash about her essentially being a Christian yeah, to, so, to our, and having a different ethical position, you know. To our viewers at home, so, I mean, this is, this is fascinating stuff. Now, this Black Humza in 2016 was <laughs> Scotland's transport minister. He got into trouble for driving his car without insurance and blamed it on the breakup mm. of his marriage. Then, in seemingly an inspired determination to alienate the electorate, in 2020, he was the Justice <laughs> Secretary and he made a speech saying that Scotland was too white. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. This bloke mentions the word white 19 times in 55 seconds. Listen to this, and of course, it's not racist, is it? You can say anything you like about white people. Listen to this. When the most senior positions in Scotland are filled almost exclusively by those who are white. Take my portfolio alone. The Lord President, white. The Lord Justice Clark, white. Every High Court judge, white. The Lord Advocate, white. The Solicitor General, white. The Chief Constable, white. Every Deputy Chief Constable, white. Every Assistant Chief Constable, white. The Head of the Law Society, white. The Head of the Faculty of Advocates, white. Every Prison Governor, white. And not just Justice. The Chief Medical Officer, white. The Chief Nursing Officer, white. The Chief Veterinary Officer, white. The Chief Social Work Advisor, white. Almost every trade union in this country headed by people who are white. In the Scottish Government, every Director General is white. Every chair of every public body is white. <laughs> David, yeah. just imagine if you said that about black people. I know, I know. I, 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 you know, I, I'd love to uh, go over to India and, uh, yeah. and uh, complain about, you know. I mean, you know, I mean it's just like... It's, Unbelievable. Uh, Unbelievable. The man is... The man is uh, uh, an, uh, an incredibly divisive figure. I spoke to an SNP MP yesterday who said, if this guy wins, we're literally going to be wiped out. Uh, you know, and this yeah. is... Um, well, well, the bloke... So, the bloke's been, as I say, I think he's got a good chance. <laughs> I know. The bloke's been health secretary since 2021. And David, you've quoted mm. Labour as saying, Scotland under his and Sturgeon's watch has two-year NHS waiting lists falling life expectancy yeah. and the worst drug deaths yeah. in Europe. And another Scottish Labor figure says, quote, everything Humza touches turns to SHIT. And an SMP member who's backing this rival Kate Forbes is quoted as saying, and I think to you, didn't he say, if Humza's elected, we'll genuinely be facing a wipeout at the next election. He would be a disaster for us. Now, I must say, David Maddox, I've got to congratulate you. You are a fountain of information. Everyone seems to talk to you. I mean, was this rival Kate Forbes a supporter of Sturgeon's gender recognition reform bill? No, she wasn't. But there was this uh, weird little... Um because Sturgeon didn't want her to resign from her government over the issue, and uh, Forbes was uh, Forbes uh, had a, had a, had a child, 
so was on maternity leave, and there was this little deal that the gender reform bill would be pushed through while she was on maternity leave, so she didn't have to vote on oh, it or right. resign from the government. Right. Uh, but of course, it all went it all went south, as oh, I say, yeah. Uh, yeah. when when Rishi uh, yeah. when Rishi Sunak did yeah. actually did the right thing for once and vetoed <laughs> absolutely the whole, the whole so, campaign, okay. you know. Right on Nostradamus, right on Nostradamus. I ask you this all the time. So you've got the left-winger Yusuf, who's described as an outright socialist. What do you think is going to happen? I think Yusuf will win, uh, uh, partly because the uh, kind of Scottish establishment media establishment seem to be piling in on Kate Forbes. It's worth maybe watching the third one, Ash Regan, who also resigned, who actually resigned from... Uh, Sturgeon's government over the gender recognition reform. She may come through the middle, but it's unlikely. Amazing. Um, it's, between, it's just amazing it's the kind of people that are emerging at the top of political parties around the world. So let's go then to Rishi Sunak, where Boris is lurking in the wings. Tell us what's happening. This is fascinating stuff with pre-selections, we call them here. Are the anti-Boris MPs being targeted? Yes, is the answer. And there's a hit list of around 60 of them. How many? Uh, the, 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 about 60. 60? Uh, I mean, 60. Theresa May's yeah. Theresa May's former Deputy Prime Minister, Damien Green, he's been deselected. Yeah. So this is a grassroots rebellion. There is, yes, there is. Uh, and there's this organisation called the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which emerged after Sunak was basically uh, imposed by uh, a group of MPs as leader and prime yes. minister, because the person they, the membership had elected, of course, was Liz Truss, yes. who the uh, MPs removed. Uh, they'd also previously elected Boris Johnson, who the MPs removed. Yes. So they've decided that uh, they want to take back control a bit. And yes. uh, you know, there's, there's three MPs so far who have um, fallen foul of this and more to come, I suspect. So basically what you're saying is, this is fascinating stuff, there's a hit list, you're saying up to 60 MPs who were responsible mm. for removing Boris Johnson and then subsequently Liz Truss and they may not yeah. be, may now not be selected. Now, this bloke Damien Green chairs the Tory One Nation group. He's gone, mm. he's lost his pre-selection, made up of former Remainers it accounts for about a third of the Tory MPs and they were instrumental in removing Boris Johnson. So yeah. are, they, are they on the chopping block? I think many of them are in this One Nation group, but not all. I mean, there's someone called Sally Ann Hart who's on the right of the party and abandoned Boris at the last minute and she seems to have fallen foul of this as well. But, yeah, most of them are in this kind of left of the party One Nation yeah. group. They're, they're the ones who... They're yeah. often called by their critics the Liberal Democrats, mm. which, uh, of course, is a left-wing party. The, the Johnson supporters and the Trust supporters are saying, well, this is about party democracy. I mean, Claire Bullivant yeah. is the chief executive now of this Conservative Democratic organisation, which was formed in the wake of the Boris coup, said that up to 60 mm. MPs should be feeling nervous. She said, it's hard to see how those who stabbed Boris in the back will ever be forgiven by the members. She said in every conservative WhatsApp group, a chat room or social media thread, the members' revolt is very real and their disenchantment is growing. She said, I suspect there'll be more punishments to come. David, you talk to all these people. Are they nervous? They are. A lot of them are nervous. But actually, I have to say a lot of them think they're going to lose their seats anyway at the elections. <laughs> it's like there's a bit of... Uh, <laughs> There's a, there's a bit of gallows humour going on amongst MPs because the polling is so bad for the Conservatives. They're going to be they're going to be down from three hundred odd seats to about a hundred at this rate if they're lucky. And it's, yeah, fair uh, way to go though. Uh, a lot of them are looking for careers in no, politics. It's a fair way to go though. I mean, the chairman of the Conservative yeah. Democratic Organisation, this group post Boris, said members should have every right. I mean, you can't argue with this. Members should have every right to select and deselect their MPs. Mm. Conservative Party headquarters has too much power in the process now, but can't control everything. These MPs are now being held to account and being made accountable for a coup that has crashed the party at the polls. Those who turned on Boris Johnson are being punished. This deselection is hard evidence of that being real, unquote. So, David, it is democracy at work. Have other Tory MPs, as you just said, 
decided not to run because they wouldn't withstand this grassroots rebellion. There, there have been one or two who uh, who have announced their retirement, and it, it seems to be linked to that. Uh, to be honest, uh, there's uh, there's a couple in the Midlands who aren't going to run again, and it's. Uh, uh, but we'll see. I mean, uh, some of the older ones, I think, are going to quit uh, before the election. Uh, they haven't announced it yet, but uh, they know what's coming. And, uh, <laughs> well, this is Lord so, Crudis. Lord Crudis, he's back with all the money. He's the chairman of the Conservative yeah. Democratic Organisation. David and I have talked about him on the programme before. And Crudis is the president. Mm -hmm. So these two, along with Claire Bullifant, who's the chief executive, they're highly organised. David, weren't these ones behind the petition to change the party rules, which would have allowed the membership a chance to vote on whether to accept Boris Johnson's resignation. Yes, they were. And actually, belatedly, we found out this week that that petition worked and that the party is now looking at the, uh, the change of the rules. They obviously delayed it so uh, the summer election could take place and that Boris wouldn't be kept mm. on. But uh, they've now been forced to accept that there are enough signatures to uh, look at a change of the rules. So uh, they've already had some success. So, uh, and, and there's no doubt that the CDO wants Boris back. And, and actually, there's some logic to it, because the Conservatives were very close in the polls when Boris was there. They're now 20-plus points that's behind. Right. And right. Rishi's, not, do that's Rishi's right. not just... All Just right. Again. Well, I think that there'll be more revealed next week. What a fascinating <laughs> environment. Hey, it's great stuff. And you're on top of it, David. It's always good to talk to you. I mean, this bloke is in the middle of everything. Very interesting stuff. David, we'll talk next week. There he is. David Maddox is the political editor, editor of The Express Online. He writes splendidly too. You can read him. David at express.co.uk. Well, before we go... I recently saw Anne Azza Ali, a minister in the Albanese government, speak on the ABC's Q&A program. In a discussion about Australia's relations with the communist regime in Beijing, she claimed that the Albanese government is investing in Australia's sovereign capabilities. I've been talking about this stuff for years. These sorts of investments are critical. Sovereign capabilities refer to Australia's ability to produce its own critical goods like fuel and fertiliser and steel and metals and cheap power and so on. The end goal will, of course, to avoid relying on supply chains that could be cut off by the flick of President Xi's pen. But as usual, with Australia's political establishment, it's all talk. While Labor ministers claimed on the ABC that they were backing Australian industries, they were twiddling their fingers while Australia's last paper manufacturing plant closed. Now, it's hard to believe, but as of last week, Australia can no longer make a piece of white paper, even though we practically have more timber forests on a per capita basis than any country on earth. And the cause is, as predictable, Labor's failure to act. Opal's Maryvale Mill, Australia's last paper manufacturing plant, which sits 100 kilometres southeast of Melbourne, has shut because of green activism and the so-called justice system. Opal said the shutdown is due to a Supreme Court decision to ban Vic Forests, the state-owned logging company that produces the timber for the mill, from logging Victoria's Gippsland and Central Highlands forests. Justice Melinda Richards told the court that Vic Forrest's logging in the East... You know it's coming up here. <laughs> I mean, finish the sentence for me. Logging in the East Gippsland and Central Highlands presented... Here we go. A threat of serious and irreversible harm to both the greater glider and the yellow-bellied glider as a species, unquote. Now, I think gliders are part of the possum family the size of a small mouse. They're called glider, I think because they apparently leap extraordinary distances with their limbs outstretched. Anyway, no logging because of the glider. As a result, loggers now need to jump through a web of green tape and regulations just to turn on a chainsaw. The paper manufacturing bill saw the writing on the wall and decided to shut up shop. The worst part? Well, this is just one of many examples. The same sort of woke rubbish is hurting our farmers in WA. This week, we learnt that Agriculture Minister Murray Watt 
the bloke who grew up and studied in the suburbs of Brisbane, reckons Australia's live sheep export trade has, quote, lost its social licence because of a range of incidents concerning animal welfare. He said, quote, community opinion more broadly, really, is that that industry, which employs at least 3,000 Australians, should be phased out. Is that community opinion or a minority opinion? He declared the government will shut the industry down, but he promised he'd do it in an orderly way. The irony of all of this, most of Australia's live sheep exports go to Kuwait, a small oil-rich Middle Eastern country that wants live sheep to sacrifice and feast upon for Eid, which is the Christmas for Muslims. And if Australia stops exporting live sheep, Kuwait will get the live sheep from another country like Romania, which will have nowhere near the strict animal welfare standards that apply to Australian farmers. I'll tell you something. We've got a real battle on our hands in this country where common sense is under significant threat. Well, that's it for me tonight and for this week. I'll be back next Tuesday night. You can watch the podcast of tonight's program at 6 a.m. That's tomorrow morning, of course, on your podcast app. Everything I say and all the interviews are on the ADH app, which you can access on your phone, your laptop or your smart TV. Now, on your TV or your phone, it's just easy, ADH TV. On your laptop, your computer, it's ADH.TV. Don't forget the dot. And your opinions count? Email me, Jones at ADH.TV. I'll see you next week. Don't forget to take the family to Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, a night to experience. That's it for me tonight. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.